Just a snippet of a great documentary titled This Is What Democracy Looks Like that was produced uh, with the help of uh, clips from over uh, 100 uh, independent media activists. Clearly, one can hear the portrayal of police as professional, as doing their jobs, as disciplined, while uh, the protesters were responsible for everything that went wrong in Seattle. Uh, well, at the same time, they were fenced in and whatnot. Well, here to help us make sense of the policing of dissent, here to help us make sense of the Battle of Seattle and how the face of law enforcement has changed uh, since November 1999 is uh, Luis Fernandez. But a bit of background, in November of 1999, 50,000 anti-globalization activists converged on Seattle to shut down the World Trade Organization's ministerial meeting. Using innovative and network-based strategies, the protests left police flummoxed. Although you don't quite hear it in that clip, uh, it did leave the police flummoxed as they were desperately searching for ways to control crowds in Seattle and to control the emerging anti-globalization movement. Faced with these new network-based tactics, law enforcement agencies transformed their policing and social control mechanisms to manage this new threat. Well, in Policing Dissent, sociologist Luis Fernandez provides a first-hand account of the changing nature of control efforts employed by local, state, and federal law enforcement agencies when confronted with mass activism. Based on ethnographic research and using an incisive, cutting-edge theoretical framework, Fernandez maps the use of legal, physical, and psychological approaches. Well, as we approach the 10-year anniversary of the so-called Battle of for Seattle. Luis Fernandez, author of Policing Dissent, Social Control, and the Anti-Globalization Movement, joins us from uh, Arizona. Luis Fernandez uh, received his PhD from the School of Justice Studies and Social Inquiry at Arizona State University. His research and teaching interests include uh, protest policing, social movements, globalization, and uh, issues in uh, social control of late modernity. He's the author of Policing Dissent, Social Control and the Anti-Globalization Movement, published by Rutgers University Press, as well as the uh, Contemporary Anarchist Studies. And uh, he's probably got dozens of more books forthcoming. So, uh, Luis Fernandez, good morning. How you doing? Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, why don't we go ahead and get, uh, get started and uh, tell our listeners a bit about... Uh, policing dissent, social control, and the anti-globalization movement. How did you choose to uh, to focus on this topic? Sure. Uh, I guess, first off, let me uh, start by saying thank you for having me. It's very kind of you. Um, as you know, and like yourself, I love talking about this kind of stuff, so I'm really, really looking forward to talking to you about this. So, with that said, um, I think the book comes out... Um, when I was, I guess, in graduate school, um, I started a year that, that, uh, the WTO protest started in, in Seattle, took off in Seattle, and I was completely mesmerized with, with what was going on, particularly because of my history. Um, I'm from Nicaragua, and I was born there and raised there, and I remember when I was 10 years old, kind of watching the revolution that took place there in 1978, 79. And I think I was mesmerized with, with revolutions for, you know, for the rest of my life. And I've been waiting for, like, a large movement um, to occur uh, in the United States uh, through that whole period of, of my 20s and 30s. And when Seattle broke, it just, I realized, this is it, <laughs> you know. Finally, there's something gigantic 
um, taking place in the United States. Uh, you know, there's, there's always been movement. There always is, there's always uh, people struggling. But I thought that the WTO protest kind of crystallized uh, a particular historical moment um, of what was happening in terms of globalization, both uh, in, the, in the U.S. and, of course, in the world. Uh, and it captured the imagination of almost an entire generation of, of young um, uh, uh, activists uh, throughout, the, throughout the United States. So at that point, I just looked at it and went, wow, what is this? I have to, you know, I have to kind of check this out. So I started attending um, protests, and I was in graduate school, and I was attending protests, kind of looking at this, and then one day I realized that I could actually, you know, um, write about protest um, and kind of um, combine both my academic interest and my activist interest. And um, so I started to participate and, uh, and be a participant observer within the, uh, the anti-globalization movement or the anti-corporate globalization movement. And I soon began to realize that I wanted to be a full-on participant observer, and I participated in everything. And uh, out of that just came um, the idea to write this book. So just to make sure that uh, listeners are familiar... If, if you can, in, in uh, a nutshell, I know that's a difficult thing to do, but uh, explain what is meant by uh, anti-globalization activists and uh, what exactly caused people to turn to the streets, uh, not only in uh, Seattle, but uh, in Miami, in Genoa, and elsewhere. Sure. Um, I think that... Um uh, this is a big topic, so it's very difficult to, to describe. I think the, the most simplest definition of, of globalization itself, uh, or corporate globalization itself, is to say that globalization is the, the elimination of, barrier, of ba- barriers so that finance um, goods and products can flow freely across borders, right? So it's a way of eliminating anything that prevents a, a good like cell phone or something that's produced in one place uh, from moving to another place and being sold so that so that commerce can flow freely across the globe of course this these kind this kind of globalization only extends to products so what happened was that people began to realize that when it came to human rights when it came to democracy when it came to humans flowing across borders all of those barriers were not being opened up <laughs> so that it was this uneven, uh, unequal, unfair kind of globalization that was occurring where things were flowing and moving uh, for commerce and, and, and the rights of corporations and products and things like that were being respected, why human rights, um, you know, food security, all these issues that, that, are, that, are, that are needed for people were not necessarily being, being um, respected or moved to the global level. So that's kind of the very just quickest possible essence uh, of what might be globalization is. Yeah, I think you did a, a, a really great job. I mean, I like the, the line or the way of thinking that uh, while products become freely traded across borders, human rights and uh, environmental protections and the like are not. So I think that that really does uh, a good job of explaining it. Um, so 50,000... You know, we we can never really get a, a, a good estimate of, of crowd sizes. Certainly, activist groups like to inflate it and like to inflate the numbers, and uh, law enforcement and cities like to underestimate numbers. But we, we all know that uh, there was a, a great turnout 
in November of 1999 in Seattle. Um, it would be easy for people to dismiss the events of Seattle as saying that uh, the city just wasn't prepared for the size of the protests. But I think that uh, given the preparation that went into uh, planning the policing of those protesters, your book does a good job of kind of dispelling that myth. So what exactly happened and how were police caught off guard? Yeah, I think that, <clears throat> yes, um, I think that the police had been preparing uh, for what's happening, but they were preparing in a particular way. Um, and I think that they were prepared uh, for mass crowds. They were prepared with um, a lot of um, new uh, weapons that had, that had, at that point, not necessarily been tested fully in the United States, uh, but we're talking about rubber, you know, bullets, you know, pepper, pepper bullets, all this kind of stuff that, that, that they had had that had been accumulating the years before, but they had. And they were prepared with all that kind of stuff. What I think they weren't necessarily prepared for was um, kind of a network-based movement. Um, that, that means a movement that's really flat and is able to organize in affinity groups. And I mean, I'm, I'm throwing out words that maybe the audience might not know, but that are able to organize in ways that, um, that are not necessarily hierarchical and it's really autonomous and independent and, and it's really flat, which means that it's not just a march coming down the street, but it's a whole bunch of different people um, possibly looking to disrupt the, the, the World Trade Organization based on, you know, the claims that I said earlier in terms that they are, you know, facilitating these things for products but not for human rights. Um, and they were willing to disrupt the meetings and the police weren't necessarily prepared for that. So what happened is that they come in and force and people were very mobile. They were coming in and out of, of locations. Um, and it kind of um, caught them really off guard. Um, but, but if you read, um, there's a, a book that you could probably find on the web. And there's an, um, I, think, I think the book is titled The Emerald City, or the chapter in the book is titled The Emerald City. Yeah, sorry, the book is called Net Wars. And the chapter in that book is The Emerald City. And, it, and it's a study that is sponsored by Rand Corporation. Uh, uh, Rand Corporation runs it and is sponsored by, by the, um, the Defense Department. And it's an analysis of what happened in, um, in Seattle. And from this internal document, you can see that what happened was that, that these networks of activists pretty much shut down, were able to shut down uh, Seattle and that the police were not prepared. They were not communicating with each other. You had a whole bunch of different police departments. The, the central command um, discussion between them was kind of broken. Um, they, there were departments that couldn't even communicate with each other in terms of what was going on. So you would have one department, one police department, um, coming in and being really, really brutal, and another one not being brutal and, and following a different tactic. So it was really a mess. Um, and what I do in my book is that I chronicle that, you know, police tend to learn, and they tend to learn really quickly. And what they did is you can see the movement in terms of both what happened in Seattle, the analysis of what happened in Seattle, the understanding that this is a network-based movement, and then you begin to see changes um, in police strategy that lead up to a, um, to a totally different kind of type of policing. I mean, not totally different, but, you know, they adapt to this particular group of people. And that's what I, uh, I, I document in the book. I want to remind listeners, they're in tune to KUCI in Irvine, 88.9 FM. This is Justice or Just Us. We're speaking with Luis Fernandez. He is the author of uh, several books, 
Uh, we're speaking today about policing dissent, social control, and the anti-globalization movement. You know, I think it's, it's really interesting that when one thinks about, say, the civil rights movement, we can certainly identify leaders. When one thinks of, you know, uh, movements on uh, the political right, we could identify leaders. When one thinks of the anti-globalization movement, one can't really identify uh, any particular uh, activist leader. And so uh, when we talk about networks, it was uh, really a, a grassroots um, mass movement as opposed to a movement led by uh, some very media-savvy individuals. Is that kind of what caught police off guard initially? Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> um, yes, absolutely. I think that that the movement doesn't... You know, there are some key players in the movement that, that you know, that, that were in the movement uh, and people that I met and I saw regularly that were, you know, sometimes at the center of... You know, however, they didn't necessarily translate into these... Um, um, two things, sorry. One of them is that they didn't necessarily translate into the media as the head figure of the movement, right, which is probably very healthy. Uh, so they don't become the representative of the anti, you know, uh, uh, corporate globalization movement or what is now called the, the global justice movement. Um, they didn't translate. And then the other one was that that, that that kind of leadership also tended to rotate so that sometimes it was the same, you know, same people, but sometimes in different settings it would be other people that would take the role um, uh, of leadership. Um, when it came to, to Seattle, um, I think that partly what, ha- partly what happened was that people had, had prepared really well for, for what was going to happen in Seattle, and they had thought about it, the, the activists had thought about it quite a bit, and had designed particular kinds of strategies, and people were coming from all over the place. They used the spokes uh, council model, which means that you, you, know, you come together, you have sent a representative from your group, they kind of have a general discussion, and then you're off, you're on, on your own for, you know, for the next few days. Um, so, yeah, I think that that is partly what caught people. And, so you, and you mentioned that uh, certainly law enforcement are fast learners and they adapt uh, very quickly. Uh, I want to move beyond uh, Seattle and take a look at what has transpired in the decades since then, but if you could provide our listeners maybe with a, a little bit of of history, what was uh, the policing of dissent like prior to Seattle, and how has it changed in the decade since? In particular, you know, with the events of nine eleven. Okay, sure. That's a long history, <laughs> so I don't know how far you want me to go back, but maybe you know. to the, just you know from this. I, I suppose probably from the from the sixties to you know what happened by the time we got to the the nineties, and then how Seattle kind of changed all that and so forth. Sure. Um, and, of course, feel free, because I know you know a lot about this as well, so feel free to, to, to chip in um, as I talk. Uh, but um, I think it went... All right, so we're, we're looking at policing in the 1960s where police were not necessarily um, trained to deal with large um, riots or large uh, uh, protests, meaning that in, in that area you have, you know, in that era you had people, police with batons and kind of with, with certain kind of... Um, um, you know, minimal uh, uh, gear coming in and then just kind of, you know, moving forward with the baton and projecting the baton forward, if you, if you can think of those images, if you've probably seen them. Um, and they're just trying to move the crowd out of, out of an intersection or move the crowd into another direction. And, and there's some kind of um, things that I've looked at, some trainings that I've looked at in terms of how they move people and everything, but it's not necessarily too strategic. Um, what happens, of course, is that both two things. One is that the anti-war movement comes in, 
and then the police have to deal with the anti-war movement in the 1960s in a particular way. But I think more importantly than the anti-war movement it, are, are the riots that occur in the 1960s in urban settings um, throughout the nation, right? We had gigantic riots um, of people burning buildings and doing all this kind of stuff that, that caught police. Um, uh, they, didn't, they didn't know how to deal with it. And there, there are several documentaries and several books that show that in certain studies there are certain things that happen where police um, come in and just start shooting people and killing people. Now, these are less known, less known um, things because it happened in black neighborhoods and in black, um, in, uh, in black cities. And so it's kind of less known as, for example, the Kent State thing where people, uh, for a few, four students were killed. You know, this is very well known. Everybody knows about it. And, you know, but there have been, there are other situations with some riots in the 60s where they were much brutal than that, um, that are for some reason kind of not, kind of hidden. But what happens, so we have the combination of the anti-war and the, and the, the urban riots that occur that begin to force police to be, to, to start to adopt like paramilitary tactics. You know, so around that time, you begin to see police kind of adopt, um, uh, get like you know military tank-like you know equipment where you can actually go in. It's not really a tank, but it's you know it's like a armored car that they can use to go into places. You begin to see you know SWAT teams kind of start coming in around that time as well, though they're not always used uh, in in protests. But you have that militarization that starts to occur. Um, and then just and just kind of slowly begins to build, right? So that trend begins, that, that blurring of police and military begins around that time and begins to blur uh, and begins to um, uh, move forward. If you're interested in this kind of stuff, I would look for the work of Peter Kraska. Um, he's really good, and he's documented this very, very well. So you begin to see that. But what happens, I think, in my opinion, what happens is that, that at the same time the police are, are doing this, they also begin to develop this ability to try to negotiate with protesters and to try to tone protesting down, uh, which is generally known as the negotiating model of policing. And you begin to you begin to see police starting to negotiate with with protesters to kind of to kind of uh, get an idea of what they're doing and then tell them no, don't do this, do that, and then everything kind of gets um, calm. And, and you begin to, or pacified in certain ways, and you also begin to see kind of a particular kind of trend of protest that, that comes in the 80s and, and part of the 90s that comes out of the peace movement where, um, where people, you know, cross the line, for example, like in the desert in Nevada where you they come in and you cross the line and you sit down and you get arrested and they grab you and they drive you forward, or some of the protests that occur or the solidarity protests that occur um, uh, about uh, Central America, Central America, and Nicaragua, where people would go in and try to stop um, trains that were trying to take military equipment down to Central America, um, and a lot of those, a lot, some of those, not a lot of those, some of those were generally um, scripted protests, meaning that you know sometimes they spoke with the police, sometimes they didn't, but it went something like this: Okay, we're going to do this. We're going to symbolically try to stop this, and then when the police come, we're going to, you know, go limb and allow them to arrest us and move forward. And you know, so for for a little while, protests looked kind of like that, you know, and that was kind of the repertoire that we were we were all doing for for a little while. And so they and were then, very they were very staged, kind of. They were more media events or spectacle exactly. than they were exactly. direct action kind of things. 
Exactly, and I don't want to call it symbolic because there's 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 that word is really loaded. So I, so I don't want to call it symbolic, but it's more like he, he it's like we developed a script, and and you know it's like we want to do this, we want to show that this is wrong, and we're going to do it in these particular ways, and then you're going to do this, and, and there it is, and then it shows up on the media. People understand that there's there's resistance to these kinds of things, and you know that kind of stuff. Um, and, and it's just it was like I said, it's just like a repertoire that develops around around protests for a little while. What happens is. Right under all that, or alongside it, not under it, along, alongside of that, it's also some a little bit more edgy protest that's beginning to occur with um, maybe with like the, the, I think it's the Berrigan brothers, am I saying that correctly? Yeah. Who begin to d- destroy things like silos and, and um, you know, trying to destroy uh, um, nuclear warheads and these kinds of things. And those are a little bit different, right, because there's more transgression in those kinds of protests. There is a little bit more um, disruptive. Um, these are the Barrigan brothers are priests, I believe, um, who try to um, do property destruction on things that are very evil, uh, and they're likely to produce death, large numbers of death in humans, like you know, a nuclear silo. Right, like example. the plow sh- the plowshares movement, where you hammer, you know, from the the quote from the Bible that you know you turn your swords into plows, and and so they would hammer on on nuclear bombs or maybe not nuclear bombs but missiles and so forth yeah yes exactly so you have that you know paralleling and at the same time at the same time um uh there's that thing that starts to develop in the north in the northwest sorry where people are now starting to do environmental work that has to do with spiking trees with putting you know like you know the earth first kind of movement and putting uh, sugar into gasoline tanks for tractors or going up into trees and living in the tree, trying to make sure that the tree is not cut down. So you begin to see kind of a different repertoire of, of, of actions, right? Um, and I think that, that new, the new one um, starts to develop, in some instances, in reaction to the old one, just like any generation always does, in reaction to the old one, which is like, no, no, we don't want to do just, just you know, transgression and just, or just, sorry, no, we don't just want to sit down and have us have them arrest me and then just walk away. We want to do something a little bit, you know, different, and they begin to do that. And what happens is the police have been, get used to this other kind of uh, protest, which is we can negotiate, okay, you come in, we grab you, everything's cool, let's just move forward, and let's get you out of the street, you know, kind of thing. And then, so by the time they get to Seattle, they've kind of been used to the, it's my contention, they've kind of been used to this history of this other thing. And what happens in Seattle is that it's, it's different. At that point, it becomes, no, we are now going to disrupt. <laughs> we are now going to prevent the people from the World Trade Organization from meeting each other at this convention center. And indeed, so we're it, going to, and indeed it worked. It shut down all of the, uh, the well, for lack of a better word, symbolic, right? Uh, the, the more uh, direct confrontational uh, strategies, the... the um, you know, blocking access to uh, the convention or the, um, you know, occupying intersections and whatnot actually did disrupt the uh, the WTO meetings in 99. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it worked at a whole bunch of levels. Not, not, only, not only did they shut down both Seattle and the World Trade Organization, but some people contend that it put a black eye on the World Trade Organization in a way that it's never been able to recover. You know, just so from from that particular event, um, and that is that before that occurred in Seattle, I don't think I knew what the World Trade Organization was. Nor, and, 
nor did I. Uh, I want to yeah, remind. And- I want to remind listeners real quickly, we're speaking with Luis Fernandez, uh, author of Policing Dissent, Social Control, and the Anti-Globalization Movement. I'm going to interject for a minute just so we could make sure to cover a wide range of, of issues. But you mentioned then that uh, this more confrontational or, or more you know, direct action type of, uh, of protest led to a more militarized uh, style of policing. But I think one of the, the most interesting aspects of your book is that you uh, are able to uh, illustrate that uh, the policing of dissent isn't just, or isn't primarily a more militarized uh, style of policing, but there's, uh, there's a lot of psychological um, and, and spatial components as well, and I really want to make sure you have time to, to talk about that. Sure. Um, yeah, I think that um, what I notice is that when, when we talk about protests and protest policing, uh, we tend to generally think of those visuals that we all know, right, which is uh, either a protester throwing something or the police uh, shooting rubber bullets at, you know, at people or the police beating people up or, you know, pepper spraying, all that kind of stuff, you know, that that's the kind of imagery that people understand and know when I talk about protests. And, um, and, and what I realized was that usually that kind of thing, when it comes to control and to controlling um, how protests occur, that's just, you know, the tip of the iceberg, right? It's just the beginning of what happens in terms, in fact, not the beginning, it's actually the end of what happens when, when, of control. It's when everything else has actually gone wrong that this thing occurs. Um, so when it, when it comes to control, there's a lot of things that occur before any of that happens that tend to set the stage um, regarding what might happen um, to a protester or what might happen to an actual protest. Um, for example, I think one of the lessons learned in, in Seattle, one of the le- lessons learned was that you should not have a large contentious uh, event, meaning an, an event like the World Trade Organization that's going to bring a lot of protests. You should not have that event in a location that's difficult to defend, and I mean spatially. And when you have in an urban setting in a, in a, in a city, it's actually sometimes difficult to, to defend because cities are like these large mazes, like a maze, right? People can come in and out, move, and do all this kind of stuff, which means tactically it's a very, very difficult um, um, space. So one of the things that happened uh, with the WTO from that point onward, from Seattle onward, is one, um, the WTO never again selected a location that had a lot of local uh, potential for local organizing. So they selected locations like Cancun, um, Qatar, which is a, it's, it's a nation in, in the Middle East that actually bans protests altogether. Um, so they selected locations in Cancun. It's very difficult because they put them out. It's kind of uh, on this little, I don't even know what to call it, like a peninsula you know, so it's kind of difficult to get to and it's expensive and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, so they know that space itself becomes really a, a central figure, a central issue uh, around protest. Um, so that's one of the things that they do. So, you know, before you even have to police anybody, if you select the right location, you might minimize the number of people that are going to protest you just purely in the selection of the location. So I think that that's kind of an example of, of how space might operate. What about protest permits, protest zones, and uh, surveillance? I mean, those are all things that uh, 
don't require those those don't require SWAT teams per se or those road warrior looking uh, tanks that we talked about earlier in the program. Yeah. So <clears throat> what happens is that that once you select a space that's generally you know defensible in a way that that Seattle was not. <laughs> um, what you can begin to do is then you can begin to set up the space and take advantages of both what's, what's useful about the space and set up certain things. Um, for example, in Cancun, in, in the WTO in Cancun in 2003, what they did is they put the, the, the uh, WTO conference um, in, in a, you know, inside Cancun. And this, the Cancun is kind of like a, if you think of a coffee mug and you think of a handle, that hand, Cancun is like that handle, right? So you have two entries, one in the up above and one below, and they put the WTO somewhere inside the handle of the coffee coffee mug. And all the protesters stayed, like, in the coffee mug because it's very difficult to get to the handle. It's very expensive. So nobody can really afford that. Uh, and no matter what anybody tells you, there are no, you know, uh, full-time paid protesters, you know. Um, and so, so it was very difficult. So what they did is they separated the entire thing, and then what they did is they... Uh, the entry of the co- you know of the handle where the where the handle hits meets the coffee mug, they put one they completely blocked that with um, police officers with water tanks with all that kind of stuff and on one side and on the other side they would have a blockade where they were coming in and looking at every bus and if you you know look like a protester they would take you out of the bus and not let you into the um, into the Cancun uh, recreational area. And um, so those are the kind of stuff that they begin to use in terms of space so you can actually separate the protesters from where um, the the meetings are actually being located. Um, in, if you look at the free trade of the organization, the free trade of the Americas, FTA, free trade of the Americas agreement, um, protests that, uh, that occurred in 2003 as well in Miami, now, this is another difficult location to, to sometimes to, to, to police, but what they did there is they pretty much told everybody in Miami to stay away for the next three days because their violent anarchists are coming and they're going to, I don't know, I, I'm not exaggerating, but some of the stuff that they say is they're going to, you know, break windows, they're going to destroy your businesses, they're going to do all this kind of stuff, um, which left Miami looking like there was a hurricane coming, everybody boarded up their windows like it was a, you know, like, like a hurricane was coming. So when the protesters showed up, um, the downtown area was completely empty. It was, it was dead, which makes it a lot easier to police for, for a variety of reasons. One of them is if you're protesting and you can actually make a claim that people agree with you, you can actually grow your protest, right? In an urban setting, people will go, oh, yeah, you're right, that is wrong, you know? Or if the police do something bad, it tends to upset the locals because people, generally humans don't like, you know, one person hurting another. Even, you know, if, right, even if you disagree with their cause, there's a, a, a sympathy factor that gets played in. Exactly. So, so if you empty out the space and then you attack protesters, then there's less sympathy factor <laughs> that's going to be available. Now, that's, so that's kind of the space, uh, space stuff. When it comes to, like, the psychological aspect, I mean, one of the things that happened in, in, in Miami is, you know, that it, it, a lot of people know, it's that they actually embedded, uh, embedded uh, media with the police, right? So kind of following what happened in Iraq with the invasion in Iraq where they embedded the media with the um, military as they went to... 
um, as they went into, you know, uh, Baghdad. They did the same thing uh, here where they embedded the media as, as with the police so that they could go watch the police as they were kind of, um, you know, policing this particular protest. And what they did is then they, they did not respect any media that was not necessarily with them. Right? So if the media was on the other side, they didn't respect that. So they didn't recognize them. In fact, one um, uh, media person actually got shot with a beanbag um, that went in right behind his ear and actually went into his, you know, between his skin and his skull hmm. and then up being lodged, you know, right by his eye. It was very, very dangerous. But this is a media person that they just was on the other side, was not embedded, and they actually ended up hurting um, hurt, hurting this guy. So psychologically, what they do is they begin to control, you know, the production of meaning around the protest. Because if you have the media on your side, um, uh, the way that I put it is, if you if you are in the location where the bullets are fa- firing away from you, it's going to be an entirely different kind of perspective than when the bullets are coming in your direction. Right? It's very it's very obvious that that position there is going to give you an entirely different understanding of what might be happening. Right? And what they try to do is to eliminate um, any kind of perspective or media coverage or the bullets are coming in your direction so that, so that the, the coverage and the, and, and the discussion occurs from one position in one location. So those are the kinds of things that they begin to um, control and try to control. They, they, um, they try to control these things. I want to add that as I'm talking about everything that the police do, not all of this is effective. You know, um, In fact, the resistance to all of this is um, can be incredibly strong and equally as effective uh, and as innovative as anything the police come up with. And then, of course, one of the most striking things uh, for me, I mean, uh, certainly our, our paths have crossed uh, at conferences, at protests and the like. So for me, the, the most uh, surprising thing that I got from your book was the extent to which uh, cities and law enforcement agencies engaged in public relations strategies to discredit protesters, to promote uh, the professionalism of the police. If, uh, if you could quickly explain some of that. And you actually interviewed uh, law enforcement officers uh, about this and about all of these strategies uh, of which you're discussing. Sure. Yeah, um, I did. I did uh, much of what I'm talking about. I was both present there. I got some of the ideas when I was there, and then I actually went and tried to interview um, officers afterwards about what they were doing to kind of get an understanding and, and kind of understand their perspective of what they were doing. Um, what you're talking about in terms of um, the example that you're talking about that, that's really good is, is a protest that occurred in, um, in Canada, and this is the, the G20, you know, the, when the, sorry, the G8, my gosh, they're now the G20, but at the time they were the G8, and that was the, the group of the eight largest nations or wealthiest nations come together and they have kind of an informal meeting and they pretty much kind of talk about a lot of really big issues and including economic and and security and a lot of a lot of things and what happened was um there was a the ga protest in in um kananaskis in uh near calgary um in in uh in in Canada, and what the Canadian police, the, the um, RCMP, did, it, what they did is they hired a a very well known PR firm called GPC International, 
And GPC International, if you Google it, is one of the largest uh, PR firms uh, in, in the world. And they hired them to kind of help them create what they call the communication plan. And this is a plan of how to communicate to stakeholders um, that are going to be part of the, of the protest, right? And by stakeholders, you mean, okay, so you have to have a message that's delivered to um, governments. You have to have a message that's delivered to um, uh, the local population in, in, in both in Canada and Calgary. Um, the, you have to have a, a, a message that's delivered to protesters, to indigenous, to, to, uh, indigenous nations that are involved in this. So what they did is they mapped out all the stakeholders, and then they mapped out how each thinks and how to address them as a PR campaign, um, but to put it fairly in their language, how to communicate with them in such a way that we can negotiate what's, about what's going to happen. Hmm. And they created an entire, entire communication plan, and they, and they implemented it. Uh, and, and developed, so they had all these kinds of uh, PR things of how to speak to particular groups, um, to particular different types of media, meaning what messages do you send international media, what message do you send to local media, what message do you, do you send to national media, you know, um, so that by the time, again, not the time of the protest, even, you know, months before the protest, they, they were on target in terms of their messaging, right? Um, so, and, and I think part of that, the strategy is, to make sure that activists don't um, take over the messaging, right? I think uh, if, if you're an activist and you're a protester, you know, you don't have a lot of resources. Your resources are very limited. Um, but one of the things that you can do is to try to figure out if this is their message, you need to figure out how to put your message along with their message. And if your message is stronger, it can actually sway people uh, in a very positive way. Um, so this is a way, uh, even though it's considered, you know, they're, they're thinking of it as communication, um, I interpret it as a very soft m mode of control of trying to figure out how to n not allow or the possibility the protesters will, you know, steal the message away from, uh, from them, you know. So you see this battle at the level of me creation of meaning, the production of meaning, um, that I found really, really interesting that, again, People don't tend to think that is going on because because you tend to think that what's going on is you know police on the streets with you know batons and things like that. Well, we are unfortunately uh, out of time. We'll we'll certainly have to have you back to finish this discussion and to talk about contemporary anarchist studies. We've seen uh, protest pens, psychological uses. We've seen uh, the use of uh, physical restraint. Uh, uh, in 45 seconds, what can uh, anti-globalization activists do to prepare for the next decade of dissent? Oh, wow. I think that, first of all, I think they already are, they already are doing it. Um, I think that the, the battle has shifted a little bit, at least in the United States, not in Europe. In Europe, they're still talking about the, the anti um, corporate globalization movement or the global justice movement. Here in the United States, in, in my opinion, some of the battles have shifted. It's still about some of the very similar issues that we've been talking about in terms of globalization, in terms of movement of people and all that kind of stuff. But it's shifted to immigration. So it's really interesting, at least around my circles, that everybody that was doing work on globalization, you know, five, six years ago, all of them are doing work around immigration issues. And to me, it's, to me I see it as a continuation and not a break. And that it's a continuation of the struggle around the issues that we've been talking about. It's just in a different arena. Because what's been happening, at least here in Arizona, is that the state and the country, uh, the, the, the local police have been hitting uh, immigrants in a really, really ruthless way. So people are now beginning to work with, with those kinds of populations. But the last thing that I want to say 
um, with you, to you is um, as we talk about police and as we talk about this, the last thing I want to leave um, people thinking is that all of this stuff is overwhelming and we can't do anything about because it's far from the truth. Um, I think, like I said, the WTO protests shifted um, uh, the WTO and how we how we understand the WTO and what we do about the WTO. It changed it drastically in a, in a way that I would say that if we actually won. The WTO has been discredited. Uh, even though it's still doing some things, it is no longer what it used to. So uh, even if the police throw everything um, at activists and all that, um, there's always, not only is there hope, they, they, they tend to win. There are big wins to be had. So uh, rather than prescribing what they can do in the next um, 10 years, uh, i just rather say that I'll be there with you, watching you and helping you, because this kind of stuff is developed collectively. Perfect. The book is called Policing Dissent, Social Control, and the Anti-Globalization Movement. It is uh, published by Rutgers University Press. You could uh, check it out uh, online or ask your favorite independent bookstore to grab it for you. Luis Fernandez, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks. It was a pleasure. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.